1: I must confess I do not fully understand TikTok. Oh mostly how do those young people make those videos? Just how? The one where they're always changing their clothes? I I just I can't even. But I still get sucked into all of the videos. The guy who wears a mask while he's cooking outside on an open fire. The guy who shoes horses. (laughs) Dermatologists extracting horrifying things from people's bodies. Oh my God. All those dances. And then there is this one I found featuring the one and only Denzel Washington. Let me tell you something. You got a friend in me. Actually, it's not Denzel Washington. It's the best Denzel Washington imitation you will ever hear.
2: Huh? I said it. You got a friend in me. Though the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed.
1: In fact, that was done by a talented young man by the name of Christian King. On TikTok, you can find him at IAM underscore CKING.
2: Yeah, yeah. You got a friend in me. I mean, you, you got troubles. I got them too. I got him too, but there's nothing I wouldn't do for you.
1: I just always laugh because, you know, Denzel has this thing he does when he's giving a monologue and he absolutely commands the attention of anyone who's listening. And so for that young man to capture the essence of Denzel uh, is just hilarious. And <laughs> it's things like that that remind me that there is still something redeemable about the internet. From Luminary, welcome to the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. I am Roxanne Gay.
3: Hey, y'all are going to get over this. Are we? Because I heard you cry a lot last night.
1: <laughs> Insecure has come to an end. The HBO series starring Issa Rae wrapped after five really intelligent and excellent seasons. I loved the show from the very first episode because it was just so beautifully shot. And to focus on these young Black professionals who were just trying to find their way in the world, it's not a story that we see often enough. And over five years, or really five seasons, we saw the ups and downs of a really wonderful group of friends. And we got to know these characters and their love lives and the disasters that they tended to make of them, their professional ups and downs. And it all came to a very satisfying end. I love you too. Which is not something that's really easy to do. How do you end a television show? How do you say goodbye to a fan base? And so it has happened. And what this show has reminded us is that there are so many amazing stories to tell about Black women. Issa Rae and her co-creators have a lot to be proud of. But one of the things that has always struck me about the show is that... Creators like her are standing on the shoulders of giants. There are Black creators who paved the way and made those stories possible. And one of those giants is novelist Terry McMillan. Uh-huh. I first encountered her work when I read the novel, Waiting to Exhale, after the movie. I saw the movie first, <laughs> like many people. And then I was like, I, if this is a book, I have to read it. And then I read the book and I was like, oh my God, this book is amazing. And then I went on to read so much more of her work. I enjoyed Disappearing Acts, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, I Almost Forgot About You. We have done an event together in person a few years ago at Chevalier Books. <laughs> Which was a lot of fun. And now she is joining me today. Terry McMillan, welcome to the
3: Roxanne Gay Agenda. Thank you, Roxanne. I remember that day, too.
1: I do, too. I do, too. You wore a beautiful, beautiful skirt, and it was a really packed event. It was great.
3: Yeah. And my dentist is right down the street. Two birds, one stone. (laughs)
1: So we're both in sunny Los Angeles, or at least it's somewhat sunny today. You're in Pasadena, and I'm Mm -hmm. in sort of the west side. And so we're about, on a good day, half an hour from each other. And yet, because of COVID, we can't do this in person. How has the pandemic been for you?
3: Well, one thing I can say is that what you and I do, we do it alone. Mm -hmm. I'm used to being by myself, because I can't write with a lot of things going on around me, and especially human beings. They get on my nerves. Um, I take walks. I live close to the Rose Bowl Mm -hmm. and hilly areas, but I'm just used to being alone. But I don't like knowing that I have to be alone, that I need to be alone. Mm -hmm. And right now, someone in my family has COVID. I know a lot of people that have had COVID. I'm just sick of it.
1: Now, I know that you moved to LA when you were 17 years old. How has L.A. shaped who you are as a person and a writer?
3: I don't count L.A. You don't? No. Really? I don't. I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't mean it quite that way. I live mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. I mean, I live in Pasadena. Yes, of course. In Old Town. I like it here. It sort of feels like a village. Mm-hmm. I don't have to deal with traffic, so I don't, I don't commute. I, all of that. When the pandemic first struck, I loved taking the freeway. I looked for reasons to take the right? freeway. Because you could no go one...
1: anywhere in anywhere. 10, 20, 30 minutes instead of two hours. It was glorious.
3: Oh, my goodness. I, like, I just used to change lanes just for the hell of it. You know, <laughs> um, You know, I'm sitting here now with 400 and some odd pages that I'm revising. And when will this novel be in the world? Do you know? Honey, if you want to finish it, and I, I can send you the. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Send it along.
1: Let me see what I can do.
3: Can I say one thing to you, though? Absolutely. I've told you this story a long time ago when I was in Paris and I was writing a different novel and I was reading Best American Short Stories. And you Mm -hmm. had a story in there right now. old, I can't remember the name of it. But all I know is, is that I jumped up out of the bed and I threw the effing book (laughs) across the room. I was like, how the eff does she do this? (laughs) I was I'm literally I got chill bumps now just remembering and I didn't know you. I didn't know who you were. And I was like, whoa. And that was how I basically discovered you.
1: I remember that. That was uh, the short story was called North Country. But you're good. Thank you. There's nobody so like you. you. Nobody like you. Oh, Thank you flatter God. me. Oh, my
3: goodness. Yeah, I'm not, that means a lot this. coming
1: from you, though, because I've been a fan oh, of your on, work Roxanne. for so long. It does. It does. Well, I, I mean, I,
3: I appreciate that. But the bottom line is, is that. Nobody has your voice and nobody does what you do and and fiction and nonfiction. Um, I mean, you're just smart. Thank you. You know, I know you went to school up there in Michigan (laughs) and I was trying to figure out what the hell was she doing up there?
1: Graduate school. I was running away from a breakup. Honestly, I moved up there. I went sight unseen. I had been dumped by email by someone I cared very deeply about. And I just thought I want to get as far away from here as possible. Well, you did. I did. I went to the oh. end of the world. Ugh. But it completely changed the trajectory of my life. That's a good thing. That was the best breakup that ever happened to me.
3: Now, that's a good story. It is. It is. It is. The best breakup that ever happened to me.
1: I mean, I think I
3: might even I might have to change write it. My, I, was gonna say, I might change my title. <laughs>
1: no. You look happy, though. I'm glad. I am very happy. I know you are. I and mean, I love being in L.A. in the winter because ugh. I'm not ready. Yeah. I don't like snow i'm done that was the one bad not there were bad things but that was the part about michigan it snowed 300 inches a year in in, uh, michigan's upper peninsula so i'm done with winter i've done my time
3: you know i grew up in michigan i did not know that where in michigan did you grow up port huron oh right on the canadian border my Mm -hmm. my senior prom was in canada sarnia ontario so what was it like growing up in port huron michigan boring (laughs) it was boring are there black people there not really, not mm-hmm. a lot, not a lot. There were most of us were related.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would guess. I would guess that
3: which is what happens. But it was beautiful because I grew up on the water. Yes. We didn't know how good we had it mm-hmm. for the most part, until years later. Uh, my senior prom was in Canada, and I gained an hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when did you first know that you wanted to be a writer?: I didn't. I didn't know I wanted to be a writer. I didn't never wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. I just, I was in college and at LACC, I mm-hmm. moved out here. I left Michigan as soon as I got out of high school. I had a roommate and I, I, I didn't know it was a poem. I didn't know what I was doing. And I wrote it down. And this guy, his name is, oh God, what's his name? He became a really good television producer, Eric somebody.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And this little thing I had written was on the table. I had to go to the bathroom, came back. He was sitting there reading. He said, You wrote this? And I said, What are you doing reading my paper? And he said, Wow, this is a great poem. And I wasn't even thinking of that it was a poem, it mm-hmm. was just something that I had written. So he was doing, um, he was about to do this television series. And he said, Can I publish this? And to be honest with you, I just tell the truth since we're on a podcast, I was. Pregnant by somebody that I wasn't supposed to be pregnant by. And I was on my way to go do some other things Mm -hmm. to stop it. Mm -hmm. And here he wants to talk about putting my poem somewhere. And I was like, you know what? I have an appointment because I think he was there (laughs) to see my roommate. Mm -hmm. I said, I got to be somewhere, you know, and long and story short. That's sort of how it started. But I also had a lot of other poems that I never told anybody or showed anybody that Mm -hmm. one just happened to be on the table. But, you know, all I knew is is it made me feel. I felt free mm-hmm. when I wrote. After I wrote, I, it was it, it was like taking a really good painkiller.
1: That's the best feeling in the world, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> Listen, I enjoy a painkiller. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but
3: but the thing is, is that you don't know. Oh, you got a little doggy. I do.
1: And I'm, there's a Starbucks delivery and my wife will get it. <laughs> I know that's why he's losing his mind. He, Whenever someone like, if you even think about our house, Max is going to bark. That's just what he does.
3: Does he drink coffee? No, we do.
1: <laughs> so that's how it started. So that's how it started. And then where do you go from there
3: with like feeling free? What happened was I ended up getting accepted to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And then when I got there, I kept on doing it. And so I had to declare a major, but I was writing for two newspapers by accident, the Daily Californian, which was for the whole university. And then we had one of black students called Black Thoughts. Mm -hmm. So I was writing for both of them. And then come my junior year, turns out I had opinions about a lot of stuff, Mm -hmm. things that really pissed me off or hurt me or that I didn't understand. I I didn't try to write poetry as something that just happened. And same with essays and stuff. I mean, I just, it's, I couldn't stop myself. Plus it wasn't like I would just stand around and talk. Well, yeah, I did that too. But, um, <laughs> but you know, but it was, it was freeing mm-hmm. that there was a place for stuff that pissed you off, you didn't understand, that hurt you, that bothered you, that confused you. And it was the one thing you could do that you weren't judged.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I, I know that feeling of freedom when I first started to write and write more seriously. I'd, I'd written since I was four, but in high school and college. You could write at four? Well, I mean, like I wrote four year old little genius. stories. <laughs> I mean, I wrote four year old stories. They weren't like care. War and Peace. But yeah, I started writing <laughs> at four. And that sense of freedom and that sense of being able to share on the page, even if no one ever read it, to be able to just share my thoughts. On whatever was so freeing and was so exhilarating and even when I'm when I'm my happiest I'm doing that kind of writing even now where I just want to I say what I want to say and I don't care what anyone out there is going to think I I pretend no one's going to read it and it's just me and the blank page and I I crave that and I, I find myself you know spending so much time doing everything but writing
3: And it's profoundly unpleasant. (laughs) Honey, I don't know where I'd be. I don't know what else I could do that would be as gratifying as writing. Mm -hmm. Because no one tells you what to do, what to say, how to say it. Mm -hmm. This is the stuff that you don't even know you feel until you write it down sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Some things surprise me because I didn't know how much I care about certain things. I'll put it this way. The thing that I love is what I don't understand. Mm-hmm. It kind of pisses me off, but then I re- realize that we don't have the answers. Do you find yourself writing toward answers? Uh, no, not answers, understanding. Okay. I mean, one of my characters has a drug problem. Mm-hmm. I have another one that was in prison incarcerated for 20 some odd years and now he's out I have no idea what that feels like mm-hmm. and also you know I have a tendency to judge people who am <laughs> <us? laughs> <laughs> 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 um, including myself mm-hmm. I I am just grateful for the opportunity to be able to be honest about the life that i live and about what i feel and what i think and how i've learned that writing is really a good way of stepping outside of your own comfort zone and being giving yourself permission to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. especially when it doesn't cuz everything doesn't revolve around
0: me from bbc radio 4 britain's biggest paranormal podcast
2: is going on a road trip
3: I appreciate the fact that I even have the capacity to give a shit. Am I allowed to swear? Yes, absolutely. Let it out. Oh, I just gave one little one. Um, (laughs) But I mean, we have an opportunity while we are alive to say what we mean, what we see, what we feel. And if it's not what we feel, what we assume other people feel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I can jump out of my own skin and out of my own heart. Uh, because to me, as a writer writing fiction, that's what you have to do. Not mm-hmm. to say that you can't plan it.
1: No, you can't. I mean, some you and can try, but I have found that you really can't. Work. No, it's always for me when I try to over plan, it's forced. And it's not that emotional connection that that I crave and that readers seem to connect to in my work just disappears. Yeah. One of the things that I always wonder about for someone you've written, I think 10 novels over the past 37 years, how do you sustain your love of writing and, and the ups and downs of dealing with publishing and touring and just the publishing world? Like what keeps you so deeply invested in your craft?
3: Well, to be very honest with you, I almost feel like I don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. It's not an intellectual decision. You know that. Yes. I write about what disturbs me and what I wish I could change, Mm -hmm. including myself, even though I'm perfect. No. (laughs) I had to throw that. I had to say that. Yes, of course you did. Uh, I'll put it this way. Just here, one thing here. This Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with my novel, Okay. I don't know where I was, but it says, I thought I was going to live forever, but I didn't. In fact, when some of my friends started dropping off and leaving this world in their 40s and 50s and the ones who felt lucky in their 60s and 70s, I felt sorry for most of them because they didn't seem to take this journey called life seriously. They were dull as if they chose their own line of demarcation. I'll stop there. But the story, I don't even know what it is. It's more to I just thought I'd read, I read. I don't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I'm saying to myself, what if you could write about something after? I mean, not to say that other writers haven't done it, but I haven't done it. And I'm 70, which I can't believe. And I'm thinking, wh- 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 where do you go from here? Mm-hmm. When do you know enough is enough or there's still more? And that's what made me write. I have a lot more. But the thing that's not the book I'm writing. Right. Uh, and I hope it's not my last book <laughs> since, I'm, since I'm talking about and I'm not morbid. I don't I'm not thinking about dying and all that stuff, mm-hmm. not even close. Uh-uh. I'm in third gear. I love
1: that. One of the big themes, the primary themes in your work is friendship and sisterhood between black women. And I know that has brought millions of readers to your work. And you said sometimes you feel closer to your friends than you do your own family. And so why is friendship so central in your novels?
3: Because I think that the love is unconditional. And mm-hmm. families, you know, you you kind of have them. You, you, you know, you can't get rid of your brother or your sister. To me, sometimes friends feel the way family members, I would think, should feel. Yes, I still have a lot of good friends. I have friends from college still, Mm -hmm. but we respect each other. We know we don't share the same attitudes about some things, which is what makes us good friends, because we respect our differences. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we get a divorce, but the bottom line is we know we're always coming back. Yes. I mean, I've got a friend I didn't speak to for a year, and then I called her up and I said, hey, ho, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and it's a joke. Okay? Of course, of but course. I, but I just I believe in friendship. Mm-hmm. And friendship to me sometimes can be as strong as love. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you trust your friends. And I mean, I have male friends too. Mm-hmm. I don't write about them as much. I just, I don't know. I feel I'm glad I'm a woman and not a man. That's all I can say.
1: I praise Beyonce for that every single day. <laughs> <laughs> There is not a day goes by that I'm not grateful to be a woman, I have to say.
3: You know, I'll I'll put it this way. What I also like is how we can change, Mm -hmm. not just physically, but I don't feel the same way now as I did two years ago, Mm -hmm. or five years ago, or 10 years ago. And not to say that men don't, but, you know, they don't seem to share it the same way. I'm like still friends with my ex husband. Mm -hmm. As much as I still like him, I can't quite tell how he's evolved. Mm -hmm. Women, you can. We share it. You can say, I feel like shit. Mm -hmm. I miss my mama. You know, I wish my sister or my brother or blah, 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 blah would understand what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. I don't like having to explain.
1: I think about change a lot because part. sometimes I think people can't change and they're not going to change. And other times I think, no, people are capable of change. And I think it's more individual than that. I don't think you can make those sweeping statements, but what is the biggest evolution that you've made in your life? I gave up drinking.
3: Oh, it's been about 40 years or more. Mm -hmm. First of all, I never drank a lot, but it didn't take much to get me drunk. And I realized that this wasn't really doing it for me. Mm -hmm. And so I just stopped drinking. But I think more than anything too, I mean, I used to smoke cigarettes, but I never could smoke a whole cigarette. And I know you're not talking just about habits and stuff like that. No, of course. But those things evolve and they turn into other things. They do. I never liked marijuana, but I, I decided to be more honest with myself. And basically to stop bullshitting myself and to try to stop judging other people, even though that has been very difficult.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when you figure out how to do that, please just let me know.
3: <laughs> um, I don't know. I realize that I need to give myself more credit. Not pat myself on the back. I struggle
1: with that. And I also struggle with learning to not judge myself. I judge myself constantly. Um, it's exhausting, in fact, but, you know, work in progress, definitely work in progress. Honey, you don't. Have- now in your latest book, uh, it's all downhill from here, which came out, uh, in the very sort of beginning of COVID in March, 2020.
3: Oh. My, my book tour was canceled. 16 cities.
1: Oh, come on. That had 16- to suck because they hadn't even figured out online events at that point.
3: Nope. But my middle name became NPR. I mean, it was good. But the bottom line is, is that when I found out it was canceled, I was like, what do you mean my book tour was canceled? Mm-hmm. People don't cancel books. That was one of the things that made me realize this was a little deeper than yeah. we thought.
1: That was it. That's what did it for me, too, because I had, you know, been sort of on this perpetual tour and I was going from event to v- event and then. Uh, I was supposed to go to Sydney, Australia, and the event was canceled because they were like, we don't know if you'll be able to get back into the US. And I was Uh like, what are you even talking about? And that's when I realized, oh, this is serious. But at the time I told my wife, she was in New York and I said, come over for two. I mean, we were going back and forth at that time and we were not yet married. And I said, just come on, bring two weeks of clothing (laughs) <laughs> we should be able to, like, we really thought we would, like, everyone would stay in their little houses for two weeks and the little virus would go away. Now, two years later, entering the third year, I think we all realized, no, it's a little more serious than that.
3: Well, I tell you what was really, what I really knew was serious. Mm-hmm. When the IRS gave us more time to file. Yeah, girl. Listen. (laughs) (laughs) They said September, and I was like, there is a God. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. There is. There is indeedy. There is. And mm, I
1: enjoyed that little extension. And and I took advantage of it. I sure, sure did. I know that in the book, uh, it's all—it's not all downhill from here. You write about sex as we get older. By any chance, did you read that recent article in the New York Times about sex after 70? You know what? It's
3: on my floor. It's on my floor right under uh, Betty. What's her name? Betty White? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's on his pile. I'll get to it. Good. One of the
1: things I was read, thinking about as I read it, it was a very interesting article that showed a lot of different sort of experiences that couples over 70 are having, and I realized we don't actually see a lot of stories about what happens after, I would say, even 50, which is weird. People just seem to, especially for women, assume that it's not there. So what did you sort of learn about writing about intimacy for women of a certain age when you
3: were writing that novel? That a lot of things that people think is true are not true. They act like they act like you just dry up Mm -hmm. um, and that you have no desire. Mm -hmm. That is total bullshit. Mm -hmm. I think this is this is based on some stuff from the prehistoric days or something. I don't know. Are people stuff women? Women thought it wasn't appropriate to admit that they still had orgasms and Mm -hmm. desire and all that. And I mean, like it was an embarrassment or something. And I'm like, WTF? Um, No, (laughs) no, no. And so my characters, and that's one of the reasons, that's why it's called It's Not All Downhill from Here. I mean, very Mm -hmm. literate, but I didn't mean just that, obviously, that you can be happy. You can find love at 50 and 60 and 70. Our bodies still function Mm -hmm. and we still have feelings. I just never buy into a lot of the stereotypes. You know, who is it that can tell me about my body better than I can? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's total bullshit.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I I love that you explored that territory in the novel. So you said you've been revising uh, 400 pages, a new novel?
3: Yes.
1: (laughs) Do you talk about work in progress? Oh, I don't mind. Oh, good. We would love to hear. What is
3: your new novel about? Well, ironically, it's called Safety. Mm -hmm. And it was called that before the pandemic. Uh, It was called Finding Safety. Oh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, I mean, I like Jaren's, but um, <laughs> then my editor said, Terry, how about just safety? And I said, whatever. But it's a, it's about a group of people. The main character owns a diner. So it's about all these people, about six or seven of them that come to a diner. So it's a multiple viewpoint story. But something kind of tragic happens mm-hmm. to someone who used to own the the diner but the characters I love. I mean, Mm -hmm. I love them. The story basically is what happens to these people's lives when there's an accident Mm -hmm. and the diner has to shut down. So you weave in and out of each of these characters' lives. And, you know, I've got prostitutes, I've got gamblers, I've got, I've got, I mean, people that have to learn how to (laughs) accept other people because these folks They ain't big on gay people, but I got quite a few of them in my book just for that reason, okay? And um, different ethnicities and all kinds of stuff, but it's, it's kind of a family. And so it's just, the story is just about their journey on how they find safety. And where did the idea come from? And these characters, how did these
1: characters come
3: to you? That's a good question. I'm trying to think. (laughs) I'm old, honey. I can't remember a lot of stuff. Um, Right. To be very honest, right this minute, I don't remember how all the characters came about, but I knew that it was a diner. It was the idea. I like the idea that people in diners usually know each other in the diner, but Mm -hmm. not outside of the diner. Yes. And people judge each other by what they think they know about you. That's true in real life. Mm -hmm. Let's face it. But the diner is a quaint space. I mean, I've got some guy out of that's been wrongfully incarcerated for 23 years and him coming out to the real world is a whole new thing. Mm -hmm. And I have different ethnicities, different. uh, I have about seven main characters. Well, there's one main character who Mm -hmm. owns the diner. Mm -hmm. And I just want to show I tried to show what happens to them outside of the diner and how much they reveal in the diner. And they lie to themselves and they lie to other people. But as the reader, you know who's telling the truth and who's mm-hmm. lying. And, what, and the story is about the trajectory of how they pretty much all end up having to tell the truth.
1: It just sounds wonderful and exciting. I, I love uh, ensemble narratives. And I also love a good diner where you meet all <laughs> the sort of interesting people uh, at the diner. You should just do a tour of diners. And do readings at diners <laughs> all across the country. Oh, see, that's a
3: good one. I that is. I'm that. That's just you for should, free, <laughs> honey. Thank you, but you should see my menu for the diner oh, that I oh, made up. Oh, go on.
1: I oh, would love honey. to know a little something on that
3: menu. Oh, whoa! <laughs> but the people that work in the diner and come to the diner. I mean, I, I've got a, a character. Her call. They call her Miss Slip and Fall. You know what that means, right? No, I don't. Girl, where you grow up? <laughs> uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm being <laughs> facetious. OK, but no people that do everything so they can always have a settlement, get a set, be waiting on a settlement. Mm-hmm. You never knew any people like that, huh?
1: No. I, and now I know what you mean by slip and fall. The people who are like trying to get a lawsuit to get a little check. Yeah. 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 I
3: got a character like that. Oh, um, I love it. But all of them. But but the thing is, is this is, you know, I love these people. Mm-hmm. There's some that get on my nerves, uh, but I have to write it like they don't. Mm hmm. How about you? When do you write?
1: Listen, uh, it's a problem. Aren't I'm you a, struggling. Aren't you
3: a publisher now? I am a, both a
1: writer yeah. and a publisher. Yeah. 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 I am. Um, I'm actually. you got to slow your roll because we miss you. Well, that's the thing. I um, we miss you.
3: I can speak for everybody. And I love your articles in the New York <laughs> Times. Yeah.
1: But it's no, your, I have two it's books your, coming out.
3: Thank you. That's all I wanted
1: to hear. Well, Terry McMillan, you are always a delight, and you have written so many foundational novels for Black women. It has been a real pleasure to have you on the Roxanne Gay Agenda. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning.
3: Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Tell your mom and daddy I'll say hi. I will. I absolutely and will. And that little doggy. That was
1: Terry McMillan, novelist extraordinaire. You can keep up with me and the podcast on social media, on Twitter at R-G-A-Y and Instagram at RoxaneGay74. Our email is roxannegayagenda at gmail.com, and we would love to hear from you. From Luminary, the Roxanne Gay podcast is produced by Curtis Fox. Our intern is Yesenia Moreno, and production support is provided by Caitlin Adams. I'm Roxanne Gay, your favorite bad feminist. Thanks for listening.